Scratch Talking Heads frontman David Byrne live at Boston's Museum of Science on May 8th. David will be appearing to talk about what for centuries scientists and philosophers have called the eel question. Much of these mysterious creatures' life cycle remains a mystery even in our advanced scientific age. David will be joined by perhaps our greatest cultural authority on the eel question, Patrick Svensson, author of the acclaimed Book of Eels. Limited tickets remain, so please get yours at singforscience.org events. Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from the Netherlands and Los Angeles, California. Don't forget to check out our other episodes and please subscribe to the show. So if you let a human toddler compete against a pig in some kind of test that that measure their intelligence, very often the animals win. Especially pigs are incredibly smart and empathetic, by the way. So there seems to be something off about this standard explanation that we humans are so smart. And what now scientists have come to believe is that it's not our rationality. No, it is our ability to work together. Or you could say it is our friendliness that's helped us to conquer the globe. They actually call this survival of the friendliest. Welcome to Sing for Science, a show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today we'll be speaking with Nick Hexham, lead singer and songwriter for the band 311. 311 rose to prominence in the mid-90s with their unique blend of rock, reggae, and hip-hop. The success of the band defied larger 1990s music trends of cynicism and irony in that their biggest hits were unabashedly upbeat and often had earnest, life-affirming messages. Case in point, their 1995 hit, All Mixed Up, begins with the lyrics, You've got to trust your instincts and let go of regret. You've got to bet on yourself now because that's your best bet. Also joining us today is Dutch historian and best-selling author Rutger Bregman. Rutger is the author of the widely read book, Utopia for Realists, How We Can Build the Ideal World. The book draws on many studies that demonstrate the viability of ideas like universal basic income, a 15-hour workweek, and an open border policy. Following the book's publication, Rutger made headlines for speaking truth to power at Davos and also being on the receiving end of an expletive-laced rant from Tucker Carlson. Central to Rutger's work is a belief that hope leads to action and cynicism in action. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is All Mixed Up, Writing Our Wrongs with Utopian Optimism. Hello, Nick and Rutger. Thank you for coming on the show. Hey there. Super happy to be here. Good to see you both. So, Nick, I wanted to start with a brief story about how your band first came on my radar. It was... um, the summer of 94, I had a band in high school and it was our first gig. We were on the same bill with a band that I would later learn 
to put it mildly, did very little to hide 311's influence on their sound, if you know what I mean. So, and the venue was part of this church, but it was kind of a hip place because you could smoke in there. I think Moby DJed there when he was in high school or something. But anyhow, before the show, a girl who was a friend of the other bands came rushing up to them and in a fit says, you guys are never going to believe this. I was just playing pool and I sunk the three ball and the 11 ball at the same time. <laughs> and they all freaked out. So anyway, needless to say, Kismet. yeah, you guys were a huge band in the nineties. Um, and like I was alluding to in the intro, it's, it's only in hindsight that I see you guys as kind of an outlier among the crowd of other bands from that era. Did you see that at the time? Did you recognize it as such? Yeah, I kind of felt like, um, what's everybody so mad about? I felt like I enjoyed energetic music and heavy music. Um, but I said in the song, Hostile Apostle, you don't have to be a prick to be heavy. Uh, you know, you can have energetic music that's a, a celebration of life. It doesn't have to be uh, necessarily destructive mm. um, and angry. And growing up in the 70s, living in Omaha, we were always worried that the, you know, I remember our teacher telling us, well, we live near Sac Air Force Base, so if there's a nuclear war, don't worry, we're going to go quick. And I'm like, <laughs> don't worry about that. And then, you know, the 90s come and we don't have an enemy anymore. And it's just this like such a time of prosperity and peace. And we're seeing, um, you know, the, the wall came down and I felt there was a lot to be happy about. And I, I felt out of step with all the anger mm. that was going on. And I tried to poke fun at them. And That's so fascinating. You know, actually, for my previous book, Humankind, which is about, you know, the, the good side of human nature, my German publisher came up with the slogan that said, uh, cynicism is so 90s. And they actually had these bags, you know, with the slogan, and they were very popular. It's like young people walking with cynicism is so 90s, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> if you want to be really avant-garde today, you have to be hopeful yeah. about the future of humanity. Uh, but that That's was so the other way around in the 90s. Back then, it was yeah. really cool. Uh, and fashionable to be very pessimistic about the state of the world. It's interesting, actually, it's, as, as Nick rightly mentions, this was all because of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And people, uh, including many historians, felt that the end of history had arrived. This was, you know, famous philosopher Francis Fukuyama who argued this, that basically because of the fall of communism, now all that was left was democracy, capitalism and you know, a lot of burgers and beer, and uh, we could just enjoy ourselves until the rest, of, uh, until the end of time. What's that Fukuyama yeah. quote you have in your book? He says, like, uh, the importance of being an optimist is you're, uh, you're, you're looking forward with hope, whereas otherwise we're just the caretakers of the museum yeah, of human yeah. history, right? Yeah, so this is probably the same in music. So in my world of academia and, and history and, and, and public intellectuals, it's really fashionable to be a cynic or to be, to be a pessimist. Because when you say everything will go downhill from now on, then people nod and they're like, hmm, yeah, that sounds very deep. But if you say, look, I think we can actually be the first generation that 
say, built a sustainable world. We can pull millions of people out of poverty. We can do so many amazing things. And actually we have done in the past couple of decades. Then they say, oh, you're so naive. Oh, we can't take this guy seriously. And mm. I guess it's probably the same in music. Uh, what do you think, Nick? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's almost a, um, an armor that people put on themselves just on a personal level to to be jaded and just be cool like you know nothing's a big deal like you're not you're not putting yourself out there if you criticize everything and i was always just trying to fight against that like jadedness is it's just like a a cancer on on people's attitude but then it comes to much larger things like what you said like it would be possible for us to create a sustainable world but only if we believe, like Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, either way, you're right. And in your mind-blowing book, Humankind, you talk about the placebo versus the nocebo and that there's so many people think that humans are inherently selfish and you know negative and greedy. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because people believe that that is what happens and so i'm like so what do we do about it that's why i was so excited to talk to you hmm. it's it's such a big problem that comes at the root of whether people believe that we are good or not hmm. and uh it's just a fascinating subject for me i guess the problem is that it's just really really hard to make good art or good music or exciting films about the good in humanity because people tend to think that the positive is boring. There's this line, I think it's in one of Tolstoy's novel. I'd have to look this up. Where, where I think one of the characters says that every happy family is happy in exactly the same way. So that's one novel for all the happy families. But all the unhappy families are unhappy in a very particular and interesting way. So that's like millions of novels for all the unhappy families. <laughs> and I guess it's 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 so often like that in, in the world of art. I mean, you think of of movies and series in general. I mean, there's so many apocalyptic series and movies out there right now. It's, it's all around, uh, you know, what some scientists call veneer theory, this, this notion that our civilization is just a thin layer, just a thin veneer, and that below that lies raw human nature, that as soon as something happens, you know, a natural disaster or the zombies arrive or the aliens or whatever, then we humans show who we really are deep down and we turn out to be ravenous beasts, monsters, right? So all this time our civilization was only just this thin layer, just a thin veneer. And that's basically being fed to us day in, day out for decades. It's it's so deeply embedded in our culture. You know, in the, in the book, I give the example of Lord of the Flies, the famous novel that we were all forced to read in school, you know, about the boys that shipwreck on a line and then turn into terrible monsters as well. And I looked at this one example where real boys shipwrecked on a real island and actually... <laughs> in the 60s, survived for 50 months and became the best of friends. Uh, that's mm. a real story. But I've, I've always been fascinated by this tendency in art is that it's so seductive for creators to just focus on the negativity. And it's so hard to make interesting music, writing, novels, you name it, about the good in us. Because very quickly you're being seen as superficial, or whatever. So that's yeah. that's the challenge. And somehow 
you did that in the 90s. So I'm really mm -hmm. curious, what was like the secret sauce? Hmm. Well, uh, I have to say that it, it did kind of sting when I was called trite for <laughs> um, talking about the, the potential of humanity. And I just- Who said that? Rolling Stone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I just believed in the hippie idealism of that I heard first in the Beatles and that like that love is a real force in the world that can help people do great things. And, you know, I just I, I had to continue working towards um, spreading a positive message. And people often say, like, I love how positive you are. And I say, well, it's not just mindless positivity of pretending it's about the struggle to cope through all the negativity and to um, keep an attitude of gratitude and find reasons to remain hopeful do you know that there's also a, a similarly positive song called all mixed up by pete Seeger? i did it, not know this <laughs> it's a it's a great celebration of diversity there's there's one verse that goes, I like Polish sausage. I like Spanish rice. Pizza pie is also nice. Corn and beans from the Indians here. Washed down by a German beer. Marco Polo traveled by camel and pony. Brought to Italy the first macaroni. And you and I, as best as we're able, will bring it all to the table. <laughs> Adorable. Love it. But yeah, it can be done <laughs> among folk, folk singers and hybrid reggae rock bands too, you know? Um... The music fan in me needs to ask you one specific question, Nick, before we get into the meat of this. Did Ron St. Germain produce this record? Yeah, so... Rutger, Ron St. Germain is a, was a big rock producer, and I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to connect this somehow to Bad Brains. I knew brains, that, of but, course. Okay. I knew okay. that. Yeah, I'm going to talk about Bad Brains. Bad Brains was a, a huge influence on me, along with like The Clash, um, was another one of my favorite bands of all time, but... You know, Bad Brains is this group of Rastas doing punk, and I had the honor to um, do a song with the lead singer, HR, recently. But anyway, oh, wow. we always wanted to work with their producer, Ron St. Germain, and the Blue Album, that the song All Mixed Up, was the first album that we did with him, and it was just a, a dream come true, because he's made the most live-sounding, energetic music that I'd ever heard, so... We were very excited to work with him. And how did you get into reggae music in, from being in Omaha? Like, how did that, con that inspiration come? Um, I heard some joy in it. Um, mm. I always also loved, you know, tropical beach culture. I loved uh, the Beach Boys and taking trips to California as a kid and uh, 50s music with my dad. And so I, I couldn't wait to, to get out to... To California, which is where I'm, where I am now, and something about reggae, there was a, a funkiness to it, um, as well as some, you know, real, real joyousness to it. And then we, three eleven, we just felt like we can combine any styles. We're gonna find a way to put, like the song all mixed up is has reggae singing, but then it's got like hard rock kind of distortion guitars. But then, and then it's got like some funk and like funky clavinet, and it kind of was a blend that I had never heard before. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the the bass line is in a um, a straight beat, and the drums are shuffled. So it's it's kind of all over the place. 
But works yeah, somehow. no, that was the first number of years that I heard. I love that song. Um, so there's a real through line between the celebration of life, joy, the style of music and your general outlook and the, the meaning that these songs carried. So I guess it's no surprise that you wanted to talk to Rutger. Yeah. And this, this song in particular, trust your instincts and let go of regret. To me, it gets down to the, the core of whether, whether you should trust human instincts or not. I mean, I, I have friends here that just, always people are the worst people are the worst. like they they say that over and over people are the worst and i'm like that's a very kind of toxic thing that you believe and so in this song i'm saying you know bet on yourself because that's your best bet that there there is a true north of good inside you but you have to get quiet and listen for the whispers and tune out a lot of the noise and rudger talks about that the news can be um it, but the news is very hard to resist so i wanted to hear more about what you know it, it's hard not to be informed but i also can see how only the worst news if it bleeds it leads and how you make the point in your book that at any given day you could say today 150,000 people were lifted out of poverty but they would never put that as a headline because it it's not negative enough and but it could be said at any given day, but people don't realize that. So that's why people keep a negative view of how the world is going. Yeah, absolutely. I think that happens so often. I always recommend, and I'm dead serious about this, is stop following the news. It's, it misinforms you and it's not good for your mental health. Um, if you really want to be informed about the state of the world, well, read books, <laughs> try and zoom out. Um, look at a great website like Our World in Data that looks at the statistics. It's really, really important. Um, What's the website? To look at the global picture in that way. Uh, Our World in Data. It's okay. probably the best website in the world. <laughs> uh, and, and you'll see that, you know, there are some things to be really worried about and there are some things to be incredibly optimistic about. So, for example, if you ask people in the past, say, 50 years, has poverty gone up? stayed about the same or gone down. Most people guess that it has probably gone up. Well, in reality, it has declined. Extreme poverty has declined by 50%. If you ask people, mm. well, what about, say, vaccinations then? Are, are, are people being vaccinated against standard diseases? They're pretty pessimistic as well. It turns out that in the 1980s, only 20% of the world population was vaccinated against terrible diseases like measles, for example. Today, it's 80%. Then you ask people, well, what about girls? Um, girls going to school, what do you think? What's the percentage of, you know, girls finishing primary school in, in the whole world? And they guess, well, it's probably only like, I don't know, 10, 20%. In reality, you know, it's, it's what is it, 70, 80% today? So mm. the world is in a much better state than we often assume. At the same time, there are some huge challenges. Of, of course, we all know about climate change, which should basically be a headline every day, um, that, that receive not enough attention. Or still, you know, there's there's still incredible suffering going on. I still today, 600 million people live in extreme poverty, and that's a terrible shame. Um, and we should we should really do something about that. And we can. That's also the good news. So all of this, I don't think you get that from the news because the news is this daily barrage of stuff that happens, and it's mostly negative. And there's been a lot of research into the 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 mental health effects of following the news. And it turns out that people, well, 
who are basically addicted to the news are more cynical, more likely to be depressed. And if you ask them basic questions about the state of the world, they do less well than chimpanzees. You know, basically that they do less well than giving random answers uh, on these uh, questions about global statistics. So again, I'm, I'm pretty serious about this. Stop following the news. Yeah. This one statistic that kind of blew my mind, tell me if I have this right. We could eradicate extreme poverty in the U.S. with $175 billion. Is that right? Yeah, so extreme poverty has already pretty much been eradicated in the United okay. States because the United States is obviously one of the richest countries in the world. But there's still what we call relative poverty, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is what we, you know, people like us would consider a really, really terrible state to be in. Um, so you could not afford basic bills. You could not afford uh, medical emergency bills or anything like that. So you'd be in 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 real trouble in many ways and it's relatively cheap to eradicate that kind of poverty um if we would just give people money which is the easiest most straightforward solution to solving poverty um well then you can do it and of course a lot of people are pessimistic about this solution they say oh if you give people money well they'll waste it on drugs or alcohol or, or all that kind of stuff uh, because we've been brainwashed to think that other people are bad and other people are lazy. But if you look at the actual scientific evidence that we have on cash transfers, it turns out it's probably the most efficient, most effective way to completely eradicate poverty. And it actually saves money in the long run as well. Because when you pull people out of poverty, healthcare costs go down, crime goes down, kids do better in school, you name it. So it's basically better for all of us. It's an investment in the health of society and that might be we all benefit but if we really want to go for this kind of solution then it all starts with updating your view of human nature because we are held back by this cynicism and by this pessimism there are so many extremely exciting ideas and solutions out there that we are not implementing right now because people are like uh, surely that can't work but just follow the facts. Look at the science. There are hundreds and hundreds of studies into what we call basic income, and it actually works. So UBI is basically cash with no strings attached, right? Yeah, that's it. It's money for nothing, as, uh, you as know, Dire Straits would say. Call it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, it's basically a monthly grant that's enough to pay for your basic needs, food, shelter, education, and that's it. It's like a floor in the income distribution. So you cannot fall below that. And no one's going to tell you what you what you got to do with it. You can decide that for yourself. You can start a new company, uh, you know, move to a different job, invest in yourself in many different ways. It's well, in Silicon Valley, I guess they call it fuck you money. Um, mm -hmm. So it's the ability to say no to things that you do not want to do. That's incredibly important for creativity. This is actually funny. Did you know that so many great bands had fuck you money? I mean, that's basically why, why was there so much creativity in the 1960s in the music industry in, in Britain? You know, why, why was that? Well, the anthropologist David Graeber has often made the point that it was because they were all on the door. You know, they were, oh, wow. they were basically all on benefits. Uh, this was true for, uh, I think, the Rolling Stones. It was true for UB40. Did you know why UB40 is called UB40? Why? Well, that's the form you had to fill in if you wanted to receive benefits. Oh, get out. So that's UB40. 
Oh, that is wild. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny. It's because you need that kind of freedom to be actually creative, not to have to think about how am I going to make it to the end of the month? You know, how am I going to afford all these bills? So <laughs> it's funny that people are often like, oh, people on benefits are lazy. Well, actually, it's brought us some of the greatest music in all of world history. Is there data available left from some of the PPP loans in the U.S.? Because I know, you know, I mean, there was a lot of chatter here about how the U.S. government is giving away money and then now uh, we can't get people to work. Um, so what's your take on that? So I don't know about these PPP loans. I do know one other fun, funny story from from the Netherlands, where I'm from. So at some mm -hmm. point in the Netherlands in the 1980s, they gave a basic income to artists. And at the time, there were a lot of, you know, right-wingers who said, oh, these artists will turn out to be incredibly lazy and do nothing. Actually, the opposite happened. They created so much art that basically the vaults of the government were, were, were overflowing at some point with, you know, sculptures and, <laughs> and paintings and you name it, and they didn't know where to put it. There was like a, an explosion of creativity. And at some point they had to abolish the basic income for artists because just too much art was being produced. And what about in this country? You said there was an MIT study about cash grants. Yes, yes. So actually there have been many studies into basic income in the U.S., not many people realize this, but in the 1970s and the 1960s, there were huge experiments going on in the United States. In places like Seattle, thousands of families were receiving money for nothing. And there were lots of researchers, anthropologists, economists studying the effects of this policy. Because at the time, almost everyone believed from the left to the right that at some point some kind of basic income was going to be implemented. It was Richard Nixon, of all people, who actually proposed a basic income. It's a pretty insane history that people have forgotten about. Um, he proposed it. The Democrats were against it, or at least they were in favor of it, but they wanted a higher basic income. So that's why they voted against Nixon's proposal. And that's why it wasn't passed in the Senate. Yeah, it's it's pretty depressing to think about this history because it could have gone in a very different way. Uh, but just to remind you again, how things can be radically different and how radically different they were in the past. I'm sorry, Nick, I think I interrupted you. Were you going to ask Rutger a question? Well, there was a couple really fascinating points in his book that I just would love to hear more about. The, the unique ability that humans blush, you, you say is a huge differentiator and then also that you can see the whites of of their eyes mm -hmm. and i just i found them both so fascinating i'd love to hear you kind of explain why those were both pivotal things in in human development yeah of course well obviously one of the biggest historical questions we can ask is why us why have we conquered the globe why not neanderthals or pigs or chimpanzees i mean there's so many animals on this planet and why are we the ones to build spaceships and pyramids and cathedrals and make music and all of that why and the, the standard answer to this question for a long time was well because god chose us and then along came charles darwin and he had you know a, a little bit of a different theory and then people started to say well maybe it's because we're so smart because we're super rational we've got these huge brains right that take up around 20 percent of of our energy every day but then along came some psychologists who started doing tests where they let 
animals, say for example pigs, compete with toddlers. Now I've got a little daughter of two, and I think that anyone who has a daughter or a toddler uh, can attest that these kids are really, really stupid. Um, <laughs> they're lovely, you know, they're they're adorable, but they're very <laughs> stupid. So uh, as Nick rightly said, there are two things in particular that are really fascinating here and that really distinguishes from other animals. So one is our ability to blush. Uh, Charles Darwin already noted this in the 19th century that we're pretty much the only animal in the whole animal kingdom that blushes. Which, if you think about it, why do we do that, right? Why do we invo involuntarily give it's away? It's a tell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why do we involuntarily give away our feelings to other members of our species, right? If we are really so cynical and nasty and Machiavellian, then that doesn't make sense. And the answer is, well, we do it because it helps to establish trust. And the same is true for our eyes. So there are around 200 primate species in total, bonobos, chimpanzees, and many others. And they all have dark sclera, as they call it. So they've got next to their irises, the space in their eyes is actually dark. That means that you can't really see what they're looking at. They're a little bit like mafiosi wearing shades or, or poker players <laughs> wearing shades, right? But with humans, I mean, I can see that both of you are looking at the camera right now. And I can see that with, we can all that see what other humans are looking at. Again, we involuntarily give away our gaze to other members of our species. And we just can't help it. We just have to. It's it's we're built that way. We're designed that way by evolution, of course. And again, you wonder why? Wouldn't it be much more advantageous for us to hide our gaze? I mean, it would be easier to say steal something from someone or mislead someone or be nasty in some kind of way. But evolution said, no, that's not how you're gonna conquer the globe you're going to conquer the globe by working together. And so blushing and these extraordinary eyes, and again, it's we're the only primate species out of 200 primate species in total that, that does this, that has this. Um, so these are some of the really striking, unique facts about what makes humans human. That's wild. Thanks for bringing that up, Nick. So that was mentioned in your other book, right? Humankind, is that right? Yeah, yeah, sorry, I tend to write. <laughs> books and books. <laughs> That's no good for you. It actually brings to mind um, another fascinating point that you make in Utopia for Realists, where cooperation is concerned. The argument for open borders, you name immigration as one of the greatest drivers of global prosperity. What's behind that thinking? Okay, so this is one of the more radical ideas <laughs> in my books. Uh, the basic idea of Utopia for Realists is that every milestone of civilization was once a utopian fantasy. Think about the end of slavery, democracy, equal rights for men and women. All of these ideas were completely bizarre once. And so the first people who proposed them, advocated for them, were seen as idiots or even worse, like dangerous radicals, maybe even terrorists, right? And the premise of Utopia for Realists is that it would be really great to find out what the utopias of today, what could be the realities of tomorrow. That's, that's the idea. And so one thing that I focus on is indeed the system of borders, which we take completely for granted. We find it normal that around 60% of your income is dependent on the fact in which country you happen to be born, that we basically have a system of global apartheid 
where it's very, very difficult for the vast majority of the world population to move anywhere else, where we let you know thousands of people drown in the sea just because they're looking for a better future. And so in the book, I look at the evidence we have in favor of more immigration, more diversity, and I debunk a lot of myths here. Uh, and I realize, obviously, that this is a super controversial and difficult topic, but that's exactly the point, because, I mean, slavery was very controversial in the 18th century as well, and if you advocated against it, then you were also branded a, a lunatic. And so, um, yeah, basically that chapter in the book is about why we should abolish all borders and what kind of world we could create in that way. And you say that we could actually become, globally, we become twice as rich, and I'm wondering, just kind of like on the micro scale, if you were to talk to someone uh, in Spain who's who's near a port, or if you were to talk to someone in southern Texas near the border, you mm -hmm. know, how would you make the case that open borders are in their best interests? It's pretty simple. So human ingenuity is the ultimate resource. Human mm -hmm. creativity. That's basically where all wealth comes from. So more people is more wealth. That's basically what it is. As a historian, you know, you see this time and time again. It's bigger societies that beat smaller societies. If you have more people, then you have more innovation, more creativity, more prosperity, more progress. And this is one of the biggest things that's holding us back today, is that we basically say to a huge part of the population, you cannot participate. Now, some people may think, oh, but they'll come and they'll take our jobs. No, actually, the opposite happens. So you actually have a more dynamic job markets and new jobs are being created. This is actually a super big issue in many, many richer countries today is that we just have uh, an enormous uh, scarcity in the workforce. So um, I think that either way, we're basically going to have to accept more immigrants. The US, by the way, has always been much better at this than Europe. It's one of the things that I love about the United States is that, look, if you aren't born in the Netherlands, you will never become Dutch. If you aren't born in Germany, you will never become German. But anyone can come to America and become an American. And I think that Americans sometimes forget how fucking awesome that is about the country. In many ways, the country is utterly broken, in my view. And I'm saying this, you know, um, as not an expert on the other side of the pond, I realize that. But in many ways, you've, you have some problems over there. But this simple fact that there's a super identity that everyone can adopt, that in principle it's possible to, for all of us to become uh, American, I think that's so, so powerful. And it, there's such a lack of publicity to the fact that first-generation immigrants are uh, so much less likely to commit crimes and you know they want to pay taxes and like there, there's just a misunderstanding of what a wonderful boost for our economy immigration is but um you know that's a different story yeah i was just recently reading the story of how the atomic bomb was made you know because of the the oppenheimer film you know i had to catch up on some reading there and so i've got this 700 page book here by by richard rhodes the making of the atomic bomb it's oh uh, thorough some light reading before bedtime uh <laughs> yeah. but anyway what's so fascinating is about Almost all these brilliant scientists who were working on the Manhattan Project, so many of them were Jewish refugees. It's just incredible. And it's because 
the US was not anti-Semitic as, as Germany was, that they were able to bring in so much talent. And I think that applies still today. If the US would say to all the Chinese, is you can basically come in, anyone with, a, say, a university degree, all the talent, the US could be a magnet for talent. And it's it's really robbing itself of so much wealth and innovation right now because it doesn't have that policy. I would really, if, if I would be an advisor to the president, that would be the first thing I'd say is basically open the borders for talent around the globe because people want to come. But don't you talk about how like we have the problem of the brain drain here? Like aren't most people just going to go work for Facebook and earn more money so that they can mm -hmm. figure out how we can click on stuff better? <laughs> Well, that's surely a problem. We have a, a certain amount of bullshit jobs in, in uh, rich societies. Uh, and I do think that's a big tragedy. It's actually the subject of my next book. But um, I, I think this point doesn't really hold because of what they call remittances. So people send a huge amount of money back to the country in which, uh, uh, from which they come. And very often when they've gained certain skills, they also go back to build new businesses and institutions and you name it in their home country. So um, I would say that most migration researchers agree that, yeah, it's, it, there's more like a brain gain going on there. Uh, you know, for a non-native speaker, you can really turn an English phrase, I got to tell you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Your other big one is... Um, <laughs> It's not communism, it's common sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that, 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 that was when I was talking about, about basic income, yeah. That's one of the things that's sometimes annoying about American discourse is that so much gets boiled down to, oh, are you a socialist? Oh, are you a capitalist? Ah, so boring. Yeah, what team are you on? Yeah. Before I consider anything <laughs> you have to say, let me see what, what team you're on. Yeah. Yeah, and that's very silly, obviously. I mean, things like universal healthcare. I mean, in this crazy country called Canada, everyone thinks it's utterly normal that everyone has access to basic healthcare. In this crazy country called the United Kingdom, the, like the most right-wing conservative will agree that, sure, everyone deserves access to basic healthcare. So that's just, that's just common sense in my view. So I, I have a question for you. Given that we can agree that quality of life is improving but what about the blips like i don't know if the homelessness sort of epidemic that's going on i don't know if that exists in europe i haven't been to europe in a mm -hmm. while but how do you explain that when there's a, there's a general trend towards standard of living but then when something like this happens like how does how does that jibe so i studied for a while and i lived for a while in los angeles I studied at ucla when i was a student and i was I couldn't believe it, how many people were living on the streets, just how many homeless people there were. I mean, just walking around in LA for 15 minutes and I, I would see more homeless people than if I would walk around for months in the Netherlands, you know? Um, and it's, it's especially bizarre because, I mean, California is supposed to be liberal, right? So if these liberals can't get their act together in their, in their own states, then then why do you have the right to lecture other people on poverty and homelessness and blah, 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 and how mm. unjust it all is if they can't manage this? And then some people say, yeah, it's because there's so many homeless people from other states coming to California because the weather's so good. Turns out not true. Actually, there was a big recent report. You know, a lot of people living on the streets were pulled. Turns out actually they're Californians. 
So this is a huge, huge failings of progressives, of liberals who know how to talk about certain issues, but don't know how to do something about it. So in one of my books, Utopia Freelists, I talk about what's basically seen as the gold standard for fighting homelessness. And you know what? It's building homes and it's providing people with shelter. It's as simple as that. So how do you solve poverty? You give people money. How do you solve homelessness? You give people homes. So this is called Housing First. It's applied basically everywhere. I think it was pioneered in Finland and in many countries do that right now. And again, it saves money because it's really expensive to let people live on the streets. Crime costs, you know, police costs, judicial costs, uh, the cost of addiction, the loss in tax revenue, you name it. I mean, it's just very, very expensive to let so much human potential go to waste on the streets. And, and there you have it, these huge encampments. It's, it's morally horrifying, but it's also just really, really stupid. Yeah, I, I guess liberals really need to look in the mirror here and think about why aren't we building more homes? Is that, I don't know, because of nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard kind of thinking is, yes, I'm very much in favor of more housing, but not here. <laughs> or are there other things going on? I'm not the expert here, but it's, it's something that, uh, I don't know strikes me. Hmm. I wanted to bring up the, the one other piece from uh, Utopia for Realists that I was hoping you could talk about briefly is the 15-hour work week, which, correct me if I'm wrong, has its roots in a prediction made by Keynes. Yeah, John Maynard Keynes, the British economist. It's a funny story, actually, that in the 1920s, early 1930s, this famous British economist, probably the greatest economist of the 20th century, believed that the greatest challenge of the 21st century would be leisure, or you could say boredom. He was looking at some of the trends that were already going on since the 1850s, and it turned out that people were working less and less and less because much work was being automated and the robots were doing more and more. So he just extrapolated into the future and he argued that, well, if this keeps going on, then at some point, you know, there will be no work left for humans and we will have to think about what the meaning of life is if we don't have a job anymore. And yeah, his simple calculation was that in 2030, we would have a working week of around 15 hours. Um, now, people may think that's nuts, that's crazy, but actually his extrapolation held up until the 60s, 70s. So until that time, the work week was shrinking and going down. It's only around, say, 1980, around, you know, the year Ronald Reagan came to power, that things started going in the opposite direction again. And now uh, Americans actually are working more than in the 1980s. So, uh, yeah, historians have been thinking since then about what's happened. Why are we working so much? I mean, what, what's, what's gone wrong with this promise of, of capitalism? We're supposed to have 15-hour working weeks by now. And you also, the other uh, counterintuitive thing you point to is the value of paternity leave, how that has these kind of knock-on effects. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously... Uh, one of the ways to make people work less is to let them focus on other things that are really important. Uh, and so parenting is pretty important, right? And so there have been many studies into the effects of paternity leave in, in Scandinavian countries, for example. And it turns out that paternity leave is a little bit like a Trojan horse. So you give it to fathers and they'll say, yes, nice. I've got some 
extra weeks off for free. I mean, you're a father, Nick, and you can probably attest that, you know, becoming a father is a quite life-changing experience. And especially if you're there in the early weeks of your kid's life, then you'll learn a lot of things very quickly. <laughs> Patience and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and some practical skills as well. And so it turns out that um, if you do a lot of that kind of work as a father, then that has uh, knock-on effects for the rest of your life. So just say two months of paternity leave often means that you'll be more engaged as a father for the next 20 years. Um, mm. Because otherwise you, you get sort of in this mode, if you're not there in the early, in the early weeks, if, if, you, if you don't participate in that way, then you basically get in this mode where you say to your partner, oh, you know how that's done. That's not my job. You know, I'm just... So um, it's really interesting that this is one of the ways to um, let people wait, basically work less. And, and focus on other things that are really important as well. Uh, but actually, I think that this is one of the broader points that I would love to make is that parenting is a form of work as well. Mm. So the way to define work is real work is when you stop doing it, things go bad. That's real work. Yeah. So <laughs> um, if the plumber stopped working, not good for us. If the trash collector stopped working, not good for us. If the musicians stopped working, it's not good for us. I wouldn't want to live in a world without music. Now, if the banker stopped working, hmm, I've looked at one historical example of a strike of bankers that happened in the 1970s in Ireland. It's the only time that we know of an old world history when the bankers went on strike. The strike lasted for six months and people didn't really care. The economy kept growing. And after six months, the bankers came back and said, all right, all right, all right, we'll get back to work, right? So there are many so-called bullshit jobs like that in, in consulting, in finance, in, uh, in you know, corporate lawyers, for example. I'm not saying that all of them are useless, but quite a few are. So that's, I think, the definition we should have of real work is just stop doing it for a while and see if people <laughs> if people are really upset. If they're not, then you're probably not doing real work. And you say that the we should count breastfeeding in the GDP, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it would add a lot to GDP, actually. I think it's also important to note that that kids need guidance. You know, when I was a kid, people like, oh, he's. He's 14. He's basically grown up. No, you, you, males especially need guidance through their like early 20s. Mm. You know, we're, we're not done maturing until much later than mm -hmm. uh, people used to think. I have some, you know, some nephews who are right around the, you know, um, 18 to 21 age. And I'm like, that they are still just kids. You absolutely. Know? Absolutely. I think around the world, all work with children is massively undervalued i mean yeah. i'm just i i bring my my daughter to daycare four days a week and i'm just blown away by the women working at daycare i mean just 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 fucking brilliant they're, I, yeah they're amazing i mean they're they're absolute heroes what they can do in a single day i mean i, I after two hours with my daughter i'm like i i i'm on the verge of, of a nervous breakdown or i mean i love her but she's very energetic and then they've got like what is it like six or seven kids in a group <laughs> i adore these people and and so often we pay them so little and we give them so little respect and i don't know they should they should earn what the bankers earn i think uh in in a really just society uh, that's how we how we would do it yeah 
you guys, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Is there any anything that you guys want to ask one another before we wrap up? Well, I, I just want to thank you again for both of your books because it gave me sort of a, a scientific uh, justification for what I kind of intuitively knew ab about human nature. But if you could, uh, you mentioned you're working on your next book. Are you going to explore like, you know, what's happening with AI and that kind of thing? Or, or where are you going on your next book? So I've become obsessed with the simple question, who are the abolitionists of today? We all admire, you know, the abolitionists of the past in the 18th century who fought for what was right and paid a very high price, uh, often had to fear for their life. And then I wonder, surely there must be something today, you know, that the historians of the future will look back on and say, look, these people were the real heroes. They were not given the credit. Actually, they were often ridiculed. But they were the abolitionists of the 21st century. So that's that's basically what I'm writing about right now. And I guess I almost want to write a self-help book for people to how to become an abolitionist of the 21st century. So that's that's one of the ideas. So obviously, the, one of the main things I'd focus on is how we treat animals, because I think that's one of the greatest moral catastrophes of our time. Um, I mean, just so many billions of animals leading terrible lives in factory farms while there's accumulating evidence that these animals are sentient and they really really suffer but maybe there are other examples as well so anyway but i want to thank you guys as well i want to thank you nick you know this is actually something that's happened to me i was obsessed with music until i was 17 or 18 i was playing guitar, playing piano, not very well, but I mean, I love doing it like four or five hours a day. And then I guess when I was around 20, um, I became obsessed with history and it, maybe there's something like a creativity portfolio, but I couldn't do both of these things at the same time. So musically, I often feel like I'm in, I'm in a desert that I sort of, I don't know, a part of me froze and, and I'm very often still listening to the music that I listened to when I was 17 or 18, right? And so um, what I love about this podcast, it, is it helps me to discover new music. Mm. <laughs> so cool. I was actually, I, I think I, I think when you were writing these songs, Nick, uh, I was mainly watching Sesame Street uh, because I'm <laughs> yeah. a little bit younger. Um, yeah. So thank you as well. Super yeah. cool. No, it's been really fun. You can catch 311 on tour this fall and also pick up your copy of the 30th anniversary vinyl edition of Music. Details can be found on their website, 311.com. Stay up to date with Rutger and find links to his books on his website, rutgerbregman.com. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, social media manager is Bailey Constis, and digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Ashley Winton, Henry Platt, Britt Buckley, Carrie Ann Marshall, and Anne Strunk for their help producing today's show. If you liked today's episode, the best way you can support us is to give us a review, tell a friend about the show, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. <laughs>